Well, I thought, this is how the world works. All energy flows according to the whims of the great magnet. What a fool I was to defy him. He knew, he knew all along. That was the good Dr. Hunter S. Thompson from his book, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. It's an idea that countermands faith and religion. It wags its finger at fate and laughs in the face of luck. It knows no coincidence, chance, happenstance. The question, what is really out there? Is it God or gods, aliens and inquisitions, energy or omnipotent pasta in the sky or nothing? Or is it something else entirely? This time on the StoryCast, Tales of the Great Magnet. Wait, what now? You ask? Okay, hang with me here. All right, so have you ever woken up in the morning, gotten ready, and started driving into work? And if you're anything like me, you've already started to think about dinner for the day. So you're thinking about doing a bowl of noodles later, and just at that very moment, the radio DJ delivers a story on the news about how bad ramen really is for you. And then later, as you're warming up those same noodles, you think of calling your mom to catch up. But then, of course, she calls you herself five minutes later. Weird enough, right? In the minutes into the call, for some unknowingly, head-waggingly odd reason, you somehow work the word superfluous into ordinary conversation. And then, just as you're eating your salty, starchy mess with your phone pinned to one of your ears, your mom updating you on all the latest family business, you pull out the day's newspaper. And what word catches your eye on page B7 in the article in the new dog grooming outfit in town? Superfluous. And then, mom starts talking about how dad's doctor says he's eating too much salt has to avoid salty prepared foods like ramen i mean doesn't it just seem like so often so many things come together i mean things that could and should and probably most likely are just coincidence but weird all the same so weird that it can't just be a random twist of fate a serendipitous correlation a fluke maybe we should owe it all to a mighty energy that compels us all the great magnet, this unstoppable, invincible force in the sky, not unlike a powerful magnet that draws together people and decisions and thoughts and dreams and love. The idea of detecting patterns in our day-to-day lives is nothing new. The concept of synchronicity was a concept first explained by Swiss psychiatrist Carl Gustav Jung in the 1920s, which holds that events are meaningful coincidences, even if they occur with no casual relationship, yet simply seem to be meaningfully related. Jung described synchronicity as a casual connecting togetherness principle, meaningful coincidence, and a casual parallelism. So essentially Jung said that just as events may be connected by causality, they may also be connected by meaning. Events connected by meaning need not have an explanation in terms of causality, which contradicted the axiom of causality, which says that everything in the universe has a cause and is thus an effect of the cause. So the idea of synchronicity has obviously been met in the scientific community with a great deal of criticism. Opponents tend to instead consider the idea of connected experiences as apophenia, 
which is the human tendency to perceive meaningful patterns within random data. Epiphany is actually taken from the opposite of the Greek word for epiphany. So, just that. The opposite of a flesh and bone manifestation of realization grounded in reality. So there we are, back to random luck again. And maybe that's what data and science says. But in that moment, where two seemingly impossible things connect, our minds yearn to find meaning. And in a world of impossibility, the stars must line up eventually, right? But our minds say no. Why? Because we feel those experiences. And when it all comes down, truly understanding those experiences in life is what we're all here on this planet to do. So our minds say one thing, but our hearts say another. Maybe that's all that matters to tip the scale. Maybe, just maybe, by having our hearts involved in the reality of a situation, it creates greater meaning that wasn't even there to begin with. And then something special happens. That actually becomes a hard fact, a real thing in the universe, the great magnet in our own lives. September 11, 2001 was many things. Horror, tragedy, unthinkable loss to be sure. But it was also something else. According to Princeton researchers, you and me and everyone else on the planet created something together on that day. A measurable global consciousness. Princeton's Roger Nelson explains the effect of the mind on the physical world. The Global Consciousness Project is a kind of expansion, I guess you might say, of the idea that groups can um, come together when they're you know, driven by a common emotion or a, an experience um, to form something new, a, a new entity, a group consciousness. We, our measurement system is, a, is designed to, to be a global network. We have about 65, 70 stations or nodes around the world where we have what we call eggs. That's an REG attached to a, a computer. So the Global Consciousness Project was designed to look at the possibility that humans, when they're brought to a common focus of attention by a disaster or a celebration, um, that, uh, that could create something new in the same way, a kind of group consciousness of millions of people all feeling the same kinds of emotions in a kind of synchronized way. At first we didn't know what kind of events to look at, so we looked at those maybe um, that are really surprising things like attacks or bombings or terrorist kind of thing. And the whole of our analysis, the formal analysis, is designed to look at the variance in the network, look at the whole network. So the September 11th event is uh, widely known as one of the things that's kind of emblematic of the Global Consciousness Project. It's, um, in some uh, respects, the biggest event that we've looked at. It turns out, in fact, it, um, manifest the potential to change the world. We did an awful lot of analysis on that. <clears throat> Some of those analyses are in 
just tracking in the way the data look. And there are some odd features like the fact that at least one of those measures started changing about four or five hours before the first plane hit. I think the data are pretty much uh, indisputably in support of the fact that we do interconnect, we interact. We're not isolated to have, you know, my consciousness inside my skull. My consciousness and yours extend out into the world and they intermix. We're a little bit like neurons in a, a giant brain which uh, we know nothing about. Consciousness is a provider of information. Consciousness is a source. We change the correlation matrix of a network that's scattered all over the world. We change it. It isn't uh, random anymore. Those devices that are separated by thousands of kilometers are suddenly acting more like each other than they should by chance. Again, that was Dr. Roger Nelson of Princeton on the idea that we as humans connect on a level that we don't even understand, whether we believe it or not. And if we can connect on the same level, maybe we're all a lot more similar than we think. A force that draws and connects and compels and brings things together to create new meaning. Sounds like the great magnet to me. We all have people with whom we share a special connection. It's more than love, friendship, togetherness. It's an unexplainable force that draws us together. We enjoy each other's presence more than we understand and miss each other more than we should. Is it this unexplainable interconnected consciousness at play? The great magnet fielding his polarized playbook, throwing everything at us until something sticks and we can't take it anymore. So we turn feeling into reality. Sometimes the best stories are from real life. Back in August 2013, as reported by The Atlantic's Chris Heller, a misconnection posted on Craigslist tells the fateful saga of a misconnection and the force that tried to draw two people together. Here's a misconnection by Anonymous. I saw you on the Manhattan-bound Brooklyn Q train. I was wearing a blue striped t-shirt and a pair of maroon pants. You were wearing a vintage red skirt and a smart white blouse. We both wore glasses. I guess we still do. You got on at DeKalb and sat across from me and we made eye contact briefly. I fell in love with you a little bit in that stupid way where you completely make up a fictional version of the person you're looking at and fall in love with that person. But I think there was something there. Several times we looked at each other and looked away. I tried to think of something to say to you, maybe pretend I didn't know where I was going and ask you for directions or say something nice about your boot-shaped earrings or just say, hot day. It all seemed so stupid. At one point I caught you staring at me and you immediately averted your eyes. You pulled a book out of your bag and started reading it, a biography of Lyndon Johnson. But I noticed you never turned a page. My stop was Union Square. But at Union Square, I decided to stay on rationalizing that I could just as easily transfer to the 7 at the 42nd Street. But then I didn't get off at 42nd either. You must have missed your stop as well because when we got all the way to the end of the line at Dittmer's, we both just sat there in the car waiting. 
I cocked my head at you inquisitively. You shrugged and held up your book as if that was the reason. Still, I said nothing. We took the train all the way back down, down through Astoria, across the East River, weaving through Midtown from Times Square to Herald Square to Union Square, under Soho and Chinatown, up across the bridge, back into Brooklyn, past Barclays and Prospect Park, past Flatbush and Midwood and Sheepshead Bay, all the way to Coney Island. And when we got to Coney, I knew I had to say something. Still, I said nothing. And so, we went back up, up and down the queue line, over and over. We caught the rush hour crowds and then saw them thin out again. We watched the sunset over Manhattan as we crossed the East River. I gave myself deadlines. I talked to her before Newkirk. I talked to her before Canal. Still, I remained silent. For months, we sat in the train saying nothing to each other. We survived on bags of Skittles sold to us by kids raising money for their basketball teams. We must have heard a million mariachi bands had our faces nearly kicked in by a hundred thousand breakdancers. I gave money to the beggars until I ran out of singles. When the train went above ground, I'd get text messages and voicemails. Where are you? What happened? Are you okay? Until my phone ran out of battery. I'll talk to her before daybreak. I'll talk to her before Tuesday. The longer I waited, the harder it got. What could I possibly say to you now? Now that we've passed the same station for the hundredth time. Maybe if I could go back to the first time the queue switched to the local R line for the weekend. I could have said, well, this is inconvenient, but I couldn't very well say it now, could I? I would kick myself for days after every time you sneezed. Why hadn't I said, bless you? That tiny gesture could have been enough to pivot us into a conversation, but here in stupid silence, still we sat. There were nine nights when we were the only two souls in the car, perhaps even on the whole train, and even then I felt self-conscious about bothering you. She's reading her book, I thought. She doesn't want to talk to me. Still, there were moments when I felt a connection. Someone would shout something crazy about Jesus, and we'd immediately look at each other to register our reactions. A couple of teenagers would exit, holding hands, and we'd both look. Young love. For 60 years, we sat in that car, just barely pretending not to notice each other. I got to know you so well, if only peripherally. I memorized the folds of your body, the contours of your face, the patterns of your breath. I saw you cry once after you'd glanced at your neighbor's newspaper. I wondered if you were crying about something specific or just the general passage of time, so unnoticeable until suddenly noticeable. I wanted to comfort you, wrap my arms around you, assure you that I knew everything would be fine, but it felt too familiar. I stayed glued to my seat. One day, in the middle of the afternoon, you stood up as the train pulled into the Queensboro Plaza. It was difficult for you, this simple task of standing up. You hadn't done it in 60 years. Holding onto the rails, you managed to get yourself to the door. You hesitated briefly there, perhaps waiting for me to say something, giving me one last chance to stop you. But rather than spit out a lifetime of suppressed, almost conversations, I said nothing. I watched you slip out between the closing, sliding doors. It took me a few more stops before I realized you were really gone. I kept waiting for you to re-enter the subway car, sit down next to me, rest your head on my shoulder. Nothing would be said. Nothing would need to be said. When the train returned to Queensboro Plaza, I craned my neck as we entered the station. Perhaps you were there, on the platform, still waiting. Perhaps I would see you, smiling and bright. 
your long gray hair waving in the wind from the oncoming train. But no, you were gone. And I realized most likely I would never see you again. And I thought about how amazing it is that you can know someone for 60 years and still yet not really know that person at all. I stayed on the train until I got to Union Square, at which point I got off and transferred to the L. You can run, but you can't hide from the great magnet. And in a world of unconnected pieces and people swirling around the highways and byways of life, churning up to and fro, up and down and all around, signs of the great magnet just might be everywhere. Hunches, gut feelings, lady luck, premonition, your soulmate. Or maybe there's really nothing to those ideas other than just what meets the eye and the mind and the heart. It's all just life. And in the words of Kurt Vonnegut, so it goes. In the end, maybe the tale of the great magnet is just pure fantasy or paranoid mysticism. But no matter how you slice it, there are experiences and people in our lives with which we share unexplainable coincidences and connections. And that counts for something, right? So in a world of chaos, one constant language connects us. Music. It's a language natively chaotic unto itself. But when the right pieces come together in a way that is as much magical as it is scientific, when the harmonies create melodies and those melodies create rhythm and it all creates something greater, all the stars align and a wall of sound, everything and nothing, cacophonous unto its own, can create something new, become something beautiful. Here's one amazing artist doing just that, covering Imogen Heap's Hide and Seek. Here's Dan Wright of YouTube fame. This amazing multi-track recording is 50 individual layers of his own voice recorded and played concurrently, creating a choral eargasm of sound. He's a one-man a cappella, all individual unconnected pieces pulled together to create something beautiful.
Storycast will be back in two weeks with more eclectic stories wrapped in intriguing themes. Oh, and if you want to donate to the show, you don't have to, but if you want to, go to storycastpodcast.com.